I've got a message to share today. It's, it sounds like a Christmas message, but it's kind of not. But um, the title of my message today is Why a Virgin? Why a Virgin? And this is actually a message that I've um, taught to the youth group um, for the last few years as a youth pastor. You know, youth always are asking the question, what? Why? Right? Kind of like toddlers a little bit. Sorry, youth. But why? Why? Especially when it comes to the Bible. They're always asking, why? Why this? Why that? And I think as adults, we sometimes just want to say, because, like when they're toddlers, we say, because I said so, right? But as adults spiritually, we kind of say, well, because the Bible says so. But, you know, I don't believe that that should just always be the answer. Just because the Bible says, because the Bible says. We need to explain why does the Bible say this? Why did God orchestrate things to happen the way they do? And this time of year, there is so much tradition and there are so many songs sung that talk about the birth of Jesus. And it's actually a very intricate and it's a very amazing way and picture that God actually put this whole thing together. And, you know, when you sing songs like Oh Holy Night or you sing the songs that we sang this morning, um, it's just easy to just think those are the traditional songs. But really and truly, there is a grand design that took place with the birth of Christ. And I want us to talk about that a little bit this morning. So why a virgin is what we're going to talk about. So turn to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to look at a prophecy about the birth of Christ. Pastor really likes this scripture right now. <laughs> Because it talks about the Lord giving us a sign. And he said this last week, but we just got a sign, didn't we? That's going to go out there this next year. Um, the Lord blessed us, blessed the people of Faith Heights Church with the ability to, to get this sign. And so, um, but in here, in chapter 7 and verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So right here, we see that one of the prophecies, and there was a lot of them, I'm actually going to talk about that here in a few minutes, but out of over 300 prophecies, one of the prophecies was that Jesus, the Messiah, would be born a virgin. And uh, this is a very specific prophecy, and there is a very specific reason for it, and that's what we're going to get into. But before we do that, we actually have to go back to the very, very, very beginning to understand why a virgin. So turn to Genesis chapter 2. Why a virgin? To understand why Jesus had to be born a virgin, we need to go back to the very beginning in the creation of mankind. And you're going to see why here at the end. But in Genesis chapter 2, we're going to look a little bit about the creation story. We're going to look about how God created man, Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to read verse 7, it says, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. It is so important for us to remember we are, humanity was created in the image of God. Yeah, that is how we were created. You want to know what God looks like? You want to know what he's like? Look around you. We were created in his image. Right. Um, the very first mention of the Trinity is actually found right at the beginning of Genesis where it says, let us make man in our image. This is the very first time we see God referring to himself as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You actually see the Holy Spirit in work right at the beginning of Genesis where it says, and the Spirit of God moved the waters. That's the Holy Spirit. So we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit right here at the very beginning of creation. And God said, we're going to make man in our image. And we were made in his image. God is a three-part being. We are three-part beings. 
We are a spirit. We have a soul. We live in a body. That's a whole other teaching. But we were created in the image of God. That means when Adam and Eve were created, they were created perfectly. There was no corruption in them at all. They were created in a divine way, but they were without sin. They were created for fellowship. They were created for having a relationship with God. God wanted someone to fellowship with someone on his level to a degree. I mean, he had angels, right? He had all that, but he wanted someone that he could connect with in a specific and special way, and that's why we are here. We were created to be, we are equal with Jesus. We are seated with him in heavenly places. God desires fellowship with us. He desires us to be a part of him and him to be a part of us. So this is how man was created. So now we're going to see what happened. And in chapter 3 of Genesis, we're going to look at the fall of man. Because again, this is all leading up to why a virgin. The fall of man. Genesis 3, and we're going to start in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. What's interesting here is I already think they were like God. They were. That is how the enemy works. He is manipulative, right? He is a deceiver. In verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And at this moment, corruption entered the world. At this moment, sin entered the world. And this was a choice that Adam and Eve made. And the thing about it is, is so many times, again, when I talk to youth, why? Why did God give them the tree? Right? Why was the serpent in the garden? Well, because God is not a dictator and he didn't want robots. Again, he wanted someone like him to fellowship with. So he gave us, which is next to Jesus, I think the greatest gift that he has ever given mankind, and that is free will. Free will is an amazing gift that God has given us. He gave it to us. He didn't have to give it to us, but he wanted us to choose if we wanted him. I mean, you think about that, right? With the marriage, you would not want someone who was forced into that marriage, forced to love you, forced to spend their life with you. You want someone to make that choice. That's what God wanted. That's what he desired was for us to be able to make the choice of whether we wanted him or not. So that's why he put the tree in the garden was to always let them know, I'm not forcing this relationship on you. I'm not forcing you to walk with me in the cool of the day. I want relationship with you, and if you want it, have it with me. And if you don't, you can choose that. And you think about it, God's all-knowing, and this is kind of the part that can kind of blow our minds, but God knew already. He knows the end from the beginning, right? He already knew what was going to happen. And it, you know, it's kind of those things, again, teens will ask that question, well, why? If he knew, why didn't he do it some other way? Why didn't it? And God is God, and again, he can see the end from the beginning. Right. He can see it all. But you know what? God was willing to risk the hurt and the pain for us to have free will and for us to have a choice. And again, that's a gift from God. That's an amazing gift that he's given us. Every day we get to choose 
if we're going to live for him, if we're going to love him and serve him, or if we're going to do our own things. And it's on his part a risk of knowing that there are many days where he feels the pain of people not choosing him, the pain of people not loving him, but he still wants us to have that choice. I mean, you think about that as a parent, right? Your kids, the day comes, they have to make their own choices, and you sometimes are going to feel the pain of their mistakes, right? Feel the pain of their bad choices, but you got to let them do it, right? You can't be a dictator to your kids. They eventually grow up. They have a will of their own. They have to choose those things. And that's how God is. God was willing to risk the hurt and the pain that would come from people not choosing him just to give us the gift of free will, to give us the gift to choose. So this is what happened. The Adam and Eve, they chose, they chose to follow a lie. They chose deception. And it was interesting. I was talking to Dominic about this last night. I kind of feel like this part of the story is the side that gets recorded, but I kind of have a feeling that Eve probably had had some conversations with the serpent beforehand. I wouldn't be surprised if there was some dialogue that we don't see here in Scripture. Why? Because I feel like if that was the first time she had been approached, would she have just been so quick to choose to go against God? So it makes you wonder, was she, you know, was she wandering to that area of the garden when she knew she probably shouldn't have? You know, were her and Adam skipping times of their walk with God in the cool of the day? I mean, you think about us, right? We don't just immediately just quickly choose to sin because, oh, it sounds great right now. No, it's a process, and the enemy knows it's a process for us. And so that deception comes, and the manipulation comes, and he tries to get you to start thinking these things. I think this was a continual conversation that Eve unfortunately allowed to keep happening, which brought her to the point that we see here in Scripture. That's just an opinion of mine. But knowing how I am, I just think it would be very hard to just quickly just one day just say, oh, I'm going to do this. I think that there was some work going on behind the scenes. And so the fall happened, corruption entered the world, and um, right in the middle of that, God does something absolutely amazing. This is one of my all-time favorite scriptures in the Bible. Go down to verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3. So Adam and Eve just, just fell, sins now officially in the world, they have now lost a piece of their relationship with God. They've lost that connection. Um, and they have now, to a degree, messed things up for everybody, right? And right here in Genesis 3, verse 14 and 15, it says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, you read that, and you're kind of like, what on earth is it talking about? This is a powerful, amazing piece of scripture. This is absolutely incredible. This is the first messianic promise in the Bible. This is the very first time that God promised that a redeemer would come and save the world. When it says here that he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, I like it in other translations. What it's talking about is God is telling the serpent, the enemy, I'm going to bring someone, and this person is going to crush your head. Right. You will strike his heel, but he is going to crush your head. And is that not what Jesus did on the cross? Absolutely. The enemy thought he had won, right? He thought by killing Jesus that he had done it. And all that was was a prick to the heel. Right. Because Jesus rose from the dead and took the power of sin in the grave, right? Took the keys of hell. And Satan is ultimately and utterly defeated. 
His end and his fate is sealed for all of eternity. Go to Revelations and read it. It's awesome. And we get to see that day. We all get to stand there and say, really? This guy was the one who deceived the nations? This guy was the one who tried to cause my family problems, tried to bring this sickness on me, tried to do all this? We get to laugh at him and see his final destruction. And look at that. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3 was this promise mentioned. Again, God was so amazing and so wise in his orchestration of humanity and how this was all going to work out. At the very moment of man's fall, there was a promise of a Savior. At the very moment, God already had it planned out that at the very moment we would be at our weakest, that we would look like everything was done for, he made a way of escape. He promised that way of escape for us. So talking about the messianic promise, talking about Jesus coming, I mentioned this earlier, there are over 300 prophecies that point to the Messiah. And you know, you look at this from a Jewish standpoint, there are messianic Jews that believe Jesus was the Messiah, and there's still a lot of Jews that believe the Messiah is yet to come. Um, and so it it's actually can be a very controversial subject between the Jewish people, even to today's present day. Um, but in looking at this, um, there are many, 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 many prophecies. In fact, all of them that Jesus did fulfill. Right. And so um, a couple of them was the first one we read was that he'd be born a virgin. That was a prophecy. Um, there was a prophecy that he'd be born in Bethlehem. So even the location, again, this, there is a grand design. Right. We sing, O little town of Bethlehem, right? Again, another traditional song. But you have to understand, Bethlehem was a prophecy, that came to pass. Um, there is a prophecy that he'd be a descendant of David. He was. You, you know, you read when we go through our Bible reading plan and we go through those days where we read through the genealogies and you're like, oh my goodness, they're very important because those genealogies is what prove the lineage of Jesus. And we need that because that prophecy needs to be proven to be fulfilled that Jesus came from David. And so that's why they're in there. You think, why was this so important? That's why they're in there. It was important for the Jewish people, nation, to record their lineages. There's other prophecies that he would be pierced, that they would um, gamble for his garments, all of these things. There's over 300 prophecies that point to the Messiah. And so there's, a, there's an author and speaker named Josh McDowell. And um, I remember as a teenager, he spoke at a youth convention called Acquire the Fire. And I was 17 years old when he came. It was my last Acquire the Fire. Actually, I was probably 18 then as a senior. And he came and he shared on the promises and the prophecies of Jesus, you know, coming to this earth and him fulfilling it, what the probability of that was. So I'm going to share that with you because it has stuck with me for all these years. And so he wrote a book, Josh McDowell wrote a book. And in this book, he names a man named Peter Stoner. And this man calculated the chance of any man fulfilling just eight, just eight prophecies of the 300 plus prophecies. So I'm actually going to have Lucas put this number up here because I can't even begin to tell you. So one man just fulfilling eight of these pro prophecies, the probability is this right here. He's going to put it up there. One in that many. <laughs> 17 zeros. 10 to the 17th power. That is the probability of one man just fulfilling eight of the prophecies of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Just eight of them. Um, he went on to saying that um, the odds of a man feeling just 48 of them goes to 10 to the 157th 
power. So imagine that many more zeros on there. That's the probability of Jesus, you know, of any man fulfilling these, pro- these prophecies. So it blows my mind that so many people don't believe that he's the Messiah because he easily, easily fulfilled eight of them and 48 of them, let alone all of them. So here's the example that they gave us, and I'm going to give this to you. So I want everyone right now to picture the state of Texas, all right? Picture the state of Texas in your mind. And you see the whole, say you're like above it and you can see it. Maybe you're out in outer space enough just to see the outline of Texas. There it is, okay? And now imagine taking a silver dollar and putting a silver dollar and covering the entire state of Texas, okay? And now add two feet of silver dollars to the entire state of Texas, all right? So the entire square mile state of Texas filled with silver dollars up to two feet high. And then you're up in the sky and you take one silver dollar and you mark it and you throw it somewhere into the middle of Texas, okay? And then you take someone, blindfold them and let them loose in the state of Texas and they only get to stop one time and pick up a silver dollar and they pick that one marked silver dollar. That is the odds of any man fulfilling the 300 plus prophecies of Jesus, that Jesus fulfilled. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That's the illustration they gave us, and it's still, to this day, that just blows my mind. That one man could fulfill all of those is as rare as that one person finding that one silver dollar in the entire state of Texas that's marked two feet high. And Jesus fulfilled them all. So why a virgin? Let's turn to Luke chapter 1. Let's answer, answer this. Luke chapter 1. Why a virgin? I love reading about Mary. Um, and Mary's been given a lot of credit, you know, especially in the Catholic Church. But I mean, this woman is someone I would strive to be. What was it about her that God chose her? to be the one to carry the Messiah. And you know, um, most scholars believe that she was younger. She was probably between 13 to 16 years old. Um, And so just to imagine, you know, what was it that was in her for the Lord to choose her? And so we're going to read here in Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 26. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So right there, do you see how many prophecies are already being set up here? House of David and a virgin. It says in verse 28, And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Another prophecy right there. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who was born will be called the Son of God. So right here, we see the angel telling her. And again, you got to think about this. She's a Jewish girl. She knows. I mean, they're waiting, anticipating the Messiah. They know what some of the prophecies are. And right here, 
in her bewilderment, yet at the same time, there has to be something that says, yet this is how it's supposed to happen. This is how it's supposed to happen. I believe that's why she had the faith to say, okay, let's do this, you know, because she knew the prophecy said someone was going to have to be that virgin, you know, why not her at that time? You know, it's amazing. We, again, we got we to gotta think more about what people, you know, how you would respond in that situation. You know, Joseph, you know, gets a little freaked out at first, and then the angel has to appear to Joseph. But again, Joseph, he was a Jew that grew up. He learned about the Messiah. They were, again, we don't understand this because he's come, but you got to imagine a race of people, a nation that had been longing for this one person to come and save them. You think about the times they were in captivity, right? In Babylon, and even at that time with the Roman Empire, all these things that are going on, and yet, what was the one thing that they had to keep telling generation after generation? The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. I mean, there's people we see when Jesus is young, we see Anna at the temple, right? And the other man who, they, what were they there doing? Longing, praying for that Messiah. Right. We're talking about generations and generations and generations of people knowing these prophecies and waiting for that day to come. And here comes an angel and tells Mary, guess what? You're the one <laughs> that's chosen. You are that virgin, the one that you've heard about. You know, when your father reads the scrolls or when you go to synagogue or all these things. And then Joseph's like, whoa, this is my wife, the one who's going to be the one. I mean, this was big to them. This was big to them. And that's why they had the scriptures, they had the Old Testament to go to, to know that this was, this is it. This is the moment that they had been waiting for. And so why a virgin? Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Why a virgin? Again, we sing about Mary, you know, we, we read the, the scripture that says, you know, that he would be born a virgin. Again, you think about that as kids, you kind of don't want to tell them what that means at first, right? Because you're like, what is a virgin? Yeah, we'll tell you someday when you're older, you know, and then, but there is a significance here that for us is huge because if Jesus had not been born a virgin, our sins could not be forgiven. And this is why. Why a virgin? Because the sin nature was not passed on to Jesus. The Bible here in Romans, we're going to read it. The Bible says that Jesus became the second Adam. Adam was born without a sin nature. He did not have a sin nature. But he did have a choice to make. And what did he do? He chose the wrong thing. He chose sin. And so for us to have a Savior, for us to have a Redeemer, we needed someone who would be without sin. And so guys, I hate to break it to you, but the sin nature's passed through you. <laughs> That's why it had to be a virgin, because the sin nature is passed through man, and God said, I need a, we need to have a redo here. We need a redo. We need a second Adam. We need someone who can come to this earth and who can have those same temptations. The Bible says Jesus was tempted at every point, just like we are, had the same choices presented to him, but he chose to not sin. It is super important that Jesus was born a virgin. Let's read this, Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read this out of the New Living Translation. We're going to start in verse 12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. You just got to think about that. Think of a little kid, right? How do they know to do wrong? Because it is in them. You think about that kid. I remember one of my friends, when they had a little girl, 
um, the DVD player was at, you know, kid hype. And she was going over there and started to press the button. And the mom said, no. And I mean, we're talking not even two years old. And so the little girl backs up. And the mom starts talking to me. And we both watch out of the corner of our eye. And what's the girl doing? She's looking, looking to see if mom's looking. What is that? That's the sin nature. That's the sin nature. We're all born with that sin nature. So when Adam sinned, sin spread to everybody, okay? For everyone sinned. It says, yes, in verse 13, yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. That's a whole nother teaching in and of itself. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God, as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who is yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are as guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other man obeyed God, many were made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what happened? Adam sinned. He blew it. But God, all the way back in Genesis 3, gave us the first messianic promise that Jesus was going to come and he was going to destroy the power of sin in the grave. And Jesus came, and he was tempted as all points, just like we were. He was the second Adam. See, God had to do this again because he said, I have to have someone who lives without sin. I have to have someone. Because if Jesus had sinned, he wouldn't have been the sacrifice we needed for our sins. He had to be that substitute. He had to be without sin so he could pay the price for our sin. That's how it had to happen. And Jesus did it. He lived this life, was tempted as all points as we've all been tempted. And, yet, and he had a choice. Don't, I mean, he was human. You know, so many times I think because he was the son of God that we think that there was something extra special inside of him that kept him from not sinning. I don't see that because Adam didn't have that. He was the second Adam. Now, he did not have the sin nature in him, but he still every day had to choose to not sin. Just like Adam had that choice too. Jesus had that choice. It was the human side of him that chose not to sin. Because again, he had to be our substitute. Right. So he had to, as a human, choose not to sin so that he could be, for us as humans, our substitute. He had to be without sin. And so Jesus was without sin. He was fully God, and he was fully human. Um, we see times when Jesus was tempted of the devil, right? We see that in the scriptures. But also, he was tempted in every point, right. in every point as we are. So any temptation you have ever faced, Jesus faced that same temptation. And he did not sin. And I was thinking about that. How did he not sin? How did he not do it? I really believe that he fellowshiped with his heavenly father regularly. I mean, we see him as a boy 
in the temple saying, I'm about my father's business. I believe Joseph and Mary, I don't think it was a secret to Jesus who he was. I think they told him exactly who he was. And I think they pointed to the scriptures and said, see, here you are. Because as an adult, didn't he do that? In the synagogue, he said, what I just read here, I'm it. I mean, he had to see that for himself. So he was constantly, I believe, in the scriptures, the Old Testament, reading about who he was. Can you imagine if we would get in the scriptures and see who we are and fellowship with our Heavenly Father? We can live a life without sin, too. We really can. And um, turn to Romans chapter 6 real quick, just one chapter over. Because Jesus lived a life without sin and because he was our substitute, now we get to be just like him on this earth. We now can say we don't have that sin nature. The old has passed away and all has become new. Do you see how important it says? You know, just as Adam sinned and sin was spread to everyone because of this wonderful, gracious gift, because Jesus lived without sin, now we can have a sinless nature too. Now, we still have temptations of the flesh. We still have that. But you have to understand, we are not the old person that we were, right? The old has passed away. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. Therefore, if we continue to have Jesus be our example and live a life that he lived on this earth, we can live a life free from sin too. Chains shall he break, right? Oh, holy night. Chains shall he break. What chains? The chain of sin, addiction, disease, all the things that came with sin. Those chains are broken now if we accept him as our savior because we now have this new nature on the inside of us. Romans 6, 6 in the New Living Translation, it says, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. Why a virgin? So that this could be us. So that we are no longer slaves to sin. So that we are no longer bound by sin in the grave. We now have right standing with God. We now have what Adam and Eve had in the garden. That right standing with God. So when we look at the Christmas story, when we look at these songs, we sing these songs, we think about this, when we're explaining it to our kids, tell them why it was so important that it was a virgin. Why was it important that it was Bethlehem? Why was it important that it was a descendant of David? Why was it important that he was pierced on the cross? All these prophecies. Why was all this important? Because God had designed all the way back in the very beginning of Genesis how this was supposed to play out. And it played out exactly the way God designed it to. Man messed up. He let us mess up. Again, that's a a gift in and of itself that he gave us. But even in our mess ups, he made that way of escape. He already had the fix in place for what was going to break. He already did all that. And it came through a girl named Mary, who was a virgin, who was very young. And because of her willingness, because she had to be willing too, because of her willingness to say, I'll be this one, Jesus was able to come to this earth. He was able to live that perfect life without sin, though he was tempted in every point just like we are. He overcame the temptation and he became the sacrifice for us, Amen. for our sins. Amen. Band, will you come up? I'm going to have the band get ready to sing that song again at Christmas Hallelujah for two reasons. One is because it's like the best Christmas song ever and you can't just hear it once. Um, but second, because as they sing this song, as the lyrics, you know, each verse continues as it's talking about him, when it gets to that last one, again, what's the point of Christmas? 
If there was no death and resurrection, there was no point in his birth. So every time we talk about the Christmas story, every time we talk about the birth of a Savior, we need to remember that there the most important part of the story is that he died for our sins so that we could have right standing with God, so that we could have fellowship with God. We could not have fellowship with God without Jesus being born a virgin, living that perfect life, and dying on the cross for our sins. So let's all stand up.